Welcome to the Pious Podcast. My name is Meshach Canyon. Thank you for joining me. Today's going to be a good episode, folks, uh, and that's because we are headed into Daniel chapter 7. And um, I'm excited about it because Daniel chapter 7 through the rest of the book is what we consider apocalyptic literature. And I'll get into what apocalyptic literature means later on, but the easiest way to say it is um, it's the stuff, it's Daniel 7 through the end of the book is like the revelation in the Old Testament. Everybody looks at Revelation and it's they recognize how fascinating it, it is, filled with images and mystery and intrigue and, and things like that. Um, and so Daniel, from chapter 7 through the end of the book, it contains similar stuff to what Revelation contains. And it's, it's actually interesting how many pastors I know um, that are preaching or teaching through apocalyptic literature at this point. One of the reasons I'm inspired to is at the beginning of the year, I was talking to our bishop, uh, Bishop Gregory Palmer, and he mentioned how uh, as he's approaching retirement, he was just telling me about, you know, what's been on the top of his mind. What is he wanting to preach? And he said that he'd been really eager to do a, a series on the letter to the seven churches in Revelation. And that kind of planted a bug in my ear because I've taught on apocalyptic literature from Daniel and Revelation before, but it's been such a long time. Um, and just, I don't know, just re-familiarizing myself, studying it again, seeing how I've grown and learned, uh, learned from the previous time I taught it. Uh, it's been intriguing. And maybe a bunch of other pastors are preaching it because the world is so messed up. People think the end, the end is near. So they're trying to, they're trying to freshen up on what the Bible has to say about all that stuff. But anyways, that's why I'm looking forward to it. So we'll, we'll see. I'm hoping that my level of excitement kind of um, oozes over to you and you get excited about it too. But before we get there, we have to do our question of the week. And this question, it's a simple one, but it's, this is one of the questions pastors really love to get in their inbox. At least this pastor does. The question is, how do I begin following Jesus as his disciple? Before I answer it, here's why I like it so much. I like it because the question assumes that the person asking, and I'm sorry, I don't know who, who it is. The person asking um, understands that salvation isn't just merely professing belief in Jesus. It's not just saying the sinner's prayer and then I'll go to heaven when they die. But this question uh, presupposes an understanding of salvation as an ongoing thing that I receive as I'm following Jesus as his disciple. Right. Um, so it's it's as we obey Jesus, as we follow him, we're slowly being transformed. We're being sanctified um, and glorified into his likeness. And so that's why I really uh, like this question, because it shows that the questioner gets it. Now, to answer the question, I actually want to read uh, a little bit from this. My, my, I, I have a book called, uh, what's this book called? A Guide to Prayer by Reuben P. Job. I use it for my uh, daily devotions in the morning time. And it has like a psalm of the day. It has an opening prayer and a closing benediction. Uh, it has scriptures and, and things like that. It also has little snippets of a sacred reading from different spiritual authors. And as I was thinking about the question that uh, somebody submitted, um, this section by a man named George MacDonald, 
who happened to be um, one of C.S. Lewis' uh, biggest influences, it seems like it answered the question better than I could. So let me read it for you. The snippet, again, is by George MacDonald from his book, Creation in Christ. Here you go. But I do not know how to awake and arise. I will tell you, get up and do something the master tells you. So make yourself his disciple at once. Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said do it or abstain because he said do not do it. It is simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him if you do not do anything he tells you. If you can think of nothing he ever said as having had an atom of influence on your doing or not doing, you have too good ground to consider yourself no disciple of his. But you can begin at once to be a disciple of the living one by obeying him in the first thing you can think of in which you're not obeying him. We must learn to obey him in everything and so must begin somewhere. Let it be at once and in the very next thing that lies at the door of our conscience. O oh, fools and slow of heart, if you think of nothing but Christ and do not set yourselves to do his words, you but build your houses on the sand. Very simple, right? You want to begin following Jesus as his disciples? Start to do what he says. Start to do what he says. You'll experience great difficulty, and that's normal. Look at his disciples in the Bible. Very early on, I mean, Jesus was always coming at them with things like, oh, ye of little faith. You don't know what kind of spirit you're of. But he said that as they are trying to follow him. They're going through the paces of becoming like him. Early on, it's difficult. And in the same way, early on, it will be difficult for us, too. So Jesus says, bless those who curse us. I guarantee you the first time someone throws their middle finger up at you, you're not going to bless them because we have been formed into the kind of people that offer a curse for a curse. But if we're going to eventually become like Jesus, then we have to start putting our bodies in a position where we do what Jesus says do, and we abstain from doing what, what Jesus says to, to not do. And I will reiterate, and this is something I learned from Dallas Willard, that it's not that we're trying to do what Jesus said, we're trying to become the kind of people who would do what Jesus said without thinking about it. But I think the first step is to at least make the attempt that by doing so, you're setting your mind to say, I want to be like Jesus. It's like the kid who decides they want to be like Mike, you know, at their first thing is they start sticking their tongue out. And then they realize, well, sticking my tongue out doesn't really help me become like Mike. Maybe I got to get a basketball and start dribbling. But it might be it might be very crucial for them to understand that sticking their tongue out or buying a pair of shoes doesn't do it. In that process of trying something, they're discovering what it takes. And so that'd be that'd be my recommendation. Um, just start doing something to be like Jesus. Read the Bible, see what Jesus said to do and begin trying to do it. Of course, you do this within a Christian community. With, past, with pastors and other teachers and people who are further along the way uh, in terms of their life with God. And then you'll get tips and, um, and helpful guides that will teach you what they did, what worked for them. And above all, you'll have the Holy Spirit as your teacher. So I cannot emphasize this enough. 
begin today, do something that Jesus said to do, abstain from something that Jesus said to not do, and trust that God will be with you the whole time. Don't look at your days as a failure, but each day, thank God for his help. And each morning when you wake up, commit to following him again, learning from your mistakes and going forward um, with full trust and confidence that God will eventually perfect the work that he began in you. So that the answer to that question from George McDonald. All right. And once again, if anyone has any questions, please submit it. I love answering these questions. Uh, it helps me understand what uh, questions people are asking, because oftentimes as a pastor, I'm reading different things than than most of my parishioners or, or most normal, quote unquote, normal Christians are. So it's really helpful for me to get these questions because it reminds me that um, people aren't really asking the the complicated questions. It's the simple questions that are typically most important uh, to be thinking about. So thank you for those who have submitted one. And now let's dive right into Daniel chapter seven and apocalyptic literature. So before we get to the text, actually, we have to understand the genre a little bit. So first of all, what is apocalyptic literature? Now, at first, when you hear that, you begin thinking about things like uh, some of the movies that we've watched have formed the way people think of of uh, apocalyptic literature. In your mind, you're probably thinking about a zombie apocalypse, right? Uh, or just apocalyptic in general, which it kind of paints a picture of um, like that movie by what's his name? Karnak called The Road. Or maybe I'm thinking about something else, but. I know the book and movies called The Road, where a, a dad and his son are kind of uh, in a world where calamity has struck and, you know, the breakdown of society and, and, and that sort of thing. When we think about apocalyptic literature, those are the kind of images uh, that come to mind, uh, images of doom and gloom, images of breakdown, collapse, all that, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, in many cases, um, apocalypse apocalyptic literature has pointed to something like that, but that doesn't necessarily uh, help us understand what the word apocalypse means, right? So if you do a like an et etymological search on the word apocalypse, I did one in the Greek, um, you'll get two words. The first word is apo in the Greek, which means uh, to remove or away from or off, something like that. And then the word kaliptain, uh, which means to cover or conceal. So a wooden translation would be like um, away from concealing or to remove or something along those lines. Or, or if you're going to have a more sophisticated word, you'd get the word reveal or unveil or uncover. That's what apocalypse is. So apocalyptic literature would be literature that uncovers something that was previously withheld or something that was previously hidden, right? That's all apocalyptic literature is. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with foretelling the future. Um, it has everything to do with helping the reader see something that they um, are kept from seeing. That's what apocalyptic literature is. It's now 
this genre of literature is actually a gift, as, as all the books in the Bible are a gift to humanity. But apocalyptic literature is uniquely a gift uh, that's connected with discipleship because it helps us see what is behind the things that we see. Right. What do I mean by that? Well, we, we live in a society. We live in, in cultures that are pulling at our hearts, that are tugging at our hearts, wooing us to become uh, certain kinds of people. In fact, I, you know, the other day as I was um, brushing my teeth, I um, my wife was watching this YouTube video about the father of capitalism. And I cannot remember his name, um, but but it was talking about how the, the cigarette brand Lucky Stripes uh, got really popular. And this guy, whoever his name was, um, he he essentially put on a fake strike. He had women come out of a store and they all stood there. Of course, the cameramen were, were there to capture them and they all lit up a cigarette. And in the newspapers the next day, it talked about like, you know, rebellious women and, and things like that. Well, it was all in an attempt to manipulate society to get people to want to like to feed off the desire of women to want to break free from uh, societal norms. And it worked. I mean, after that, the Lucky Stripes brand took off and cigarette usage uh, took off. And so why did I say that story? Look, I almost I almost went into that thing where it's like, what? Why did I say that? I say that because there's a lot of things that happen in our culture that are pulling upon us and and wooing us to become certain kind of people, people who will buy, people who will consume, people who will look a certain kind of way, people who will think certain kind of things about us. People who will give our loyalty to different political parties or different um, different movements that are happening, different understandings of human sexuality. Apocalyptic literature is given to help us see what's behind that thing. Society is telling me that this is the good life. But what is behind that? When you open up the pages of the Bible, uh, especially to apocalyptic uh, genres, you're looking behind or as I like to say, you're looking at the, see, the things that we see, but you're seeing them through the vantage point of heaven. Uh, some of you guys may have heard one of the most famous commencement speeches uh, by a man named David Foster Wallace. He was a, uh, an author, I think a journalist as well, that tragically committed suicide. Uh, but he has a speech that's called What is Water? And you should look it up on YouTube. It's really good. But in it, he says... Uh, there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. The older fish nods at them and says, morning, boys. How's the water? The two young fish swam on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, what the hell is water? You get it? They've been in water. They've been immersed in it their entire lives, but they don't know what it is. It'd be like, um, you know, like suppose we didn't know what oxygen was. We're breathing the stuff. We need it to keep us to keep us alive, but we don't see it. So if someone that's more learned than we are says, hey, man, doesn't the oxygen feel so good today? We may respond the same way. That's what apocalyptic literature helps us see is the things that are around us that are governing our lives, but they're invisible uh, to us. And so it exists, this genre of literature to help us become aware of what we're immersed in. It, that's what it helps us do. Now, how does it help us become aware of what we're immersed in? Well, I'm going to turn to 
Um, one of my favorite authors, a man named James K.A. Smith, he is a Christian philosopher and he, he writes a lot about worship and formation uh, and philosophy and things like that. Now, here's, here's what he says about apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature, the sort you find in the strange pages of Daniel and the book of Revelation, is a genre of scripture that tries to get us to see or see through the empires that constitute our environment in order to see them for what they really are. Unfortunately, we associate apocalyptic literature with end times literature as if its goal were a matter of prediction. But this is a misunderstanding of the biblical genre. The point of apocalyptic literature is not prediction, but unmasking, unveiling the realities around us for what they really are. While the Roman Empire pretends to be a gift to civilization and the zenith of human accomplishment, John's apocalyptic perspective from an heavenly angle shows us the reality. Rome is a monster. So that's that's how apocalyptic literature helps us in our discipleship. Because it's like it's God looking down on the world that we're in. And so he sends us this world to help us see things the way that he sees things. I can't help but thinking about Elijah, Elisha's servant. I believe this is in Second Kings 6 when the Syrian army is surrounding them. And Elisha's servant goes outside to, you know, to check the newspaper and to, you know, prepare a meal for his master Elijah. And then he sees the army. He goes back in, he wakes up the, the prophet Elisha and he pulls him outside and he's like, look around, we're surrounded by these armies. And then Elisha says, um, Lord, please open up my servant eyes so he can see. And then the Lord opens up his eyes and he sees, yes, they're surrounded by the Syrian army, but they're also surrounded by um, a host of of angels who are in chariots of fire, right? So that's like the positive side of apocalyptic literature where the, the his eyes were opened up so that he could see that God is with them. Well, in apocalyptic literature in the Bible, our eyes are opened up to see some of the negative realities that are surrounding us and that are pulling on our hearts. Now, before we get there, and I promise we're almost going to be there, as you can probably tell, this episode is going to be mostly on how to read apocalyptic literature, and then we'll just do a summary view of Daniel chapter 7. The last thing that I think is necessary before we get to, to the actual passage is to talk about how best to read apocalyptic literature. Because, you know, for the most part, many of us grownups, especially us in the West that have been educated um, in in an undergrad or maybe a professional degree or something like that, a lot of us, man, we have kind of, we've been so trained to read things in a critical way that it's difficult for us to read in an, imagine, in, in an imaginative way. I had trouble saying that word. In fact, I, I remember maybe from undergrad, so 2002 all the way through 2000 and. 11, I had been mostly reading academic books um, for undergrad and then for seminary. I think in that whole time period, I only read maybe two or three fictional uh, works. And that does something to you, especially as I began preaching. I realized how stunted my imagination was 
because I was only reading technical works. I wasn't reading any fiction. And so when I was preaching, my sermons were sounding very technical and very kind of academic and and not academic in that because I'm really smart, but academic and because I've only been reading academic stuff. So I'm speaking that language. And so I forced myself for a long time to just dive into a lot of the fiction uh, that I've been missing out on. And it was like a wellspring in my soul, just helping me uh, speak more creatively and helping me see and understand and then convey things um, in a non-academic way. And I recommend that. Like if you if you want to read acad- um, apocalyptic literature well, you got to read fiction on a regular basis. That part of your mind has to be opened up to to imagine a dragon, to imagine a beast coming out of a pit, to imagine an angel flying through the sky or things like that. So and here's a line that I always use when people are diving into apocalyptic literature. Don't listen or don't read the story of listening with your ears, but read the story listening with your eyes. In other words, see what the apocalyptic literature, see the picture that is painting and let that image paint a picture, like create a movie in your eyes so that you can see it. So you're not just hearing it, but you're seeing it. It's like like some of you who have kids or grandkids, when you read them a story, a children's book, you know, if the children's book has pictures, you turn the pic- the book to them and show them the picture. Or if it doesn't have pictures, you're reading a book that's very descriptive. So, for instance, if it's Harry Potter, those books, you can almost see the castle. You can you can see um, Dumbledore. You, you have a, a very strong sense of, of what he looked like. So much so that when the movie comes out, many kids are like, that's not what Dumbledore looks like. Right. Because in their mind, they've already had the picture painted for them. So as we dive into Daniel chapter seven, you got to endeavor to not just listen with your ears, but try to listen with your eyes, take in the words, but allow the words to paint a picture in your mind and hold it there. If you do that, you'll be able to read apocalyptic literature. The last thing I want to do is read a poem by a man named G.K. Chesterton, and then we're going to dive in. So this poem, G.K. Chesterton, he was, again, one of these people Um, Actually, George MacDonald was also a huge influence to G.K. Chesterton, but he was alive early, early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, I believe. And this pro this this poem is actually a review of, I think, a book that his friend was was uh, had written and he asked Chesterton to review it. So here's so he wrote the review in a poem called Lines Written in a Picture Book. He goes. This is the sort of book we like for you and I are very small with pictures stuck in anyhow and hardly any words at all. You will not understand a word of all the words, including mine. Never you trouble. You can see and all directness is divine. Stand up and keep your childishness. Read all the pedant screeds and strictures, but don't believe in anything that can't be told in colored pictures. So with that on your mind, let us turn to Daniel chapter seven. It's a long passage with 28 verses. I'm only going to read verses one through 12. Listen with your eyes. Okay. Listen with your eyes. Daniel 
In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I'm going to keep on reading through verse 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, I mean, if, if, you, if you're like me, you're reading that stuff and you're like, what in the world is going on? We got lions with wings and we got four-headed beasts and we have a bear that, that just came from a barbecue. He has ribs in his mouth. One of the creatures has iron teeth. What in the world is going on here? Well, let's work through this thing slowly, okay? And, and actually, actually, if you read verses 15 through... Uh, the very end, you'll get the the interpretation of it. So I'll allow you to to read uh, the interpretation on your own. I read the vision. OK, so the interpretation is very helpful, um, but I just want to just just uh, try it out on on our own without getting there. So when this podcast is over with, go read uh, the rest of it for yourself. So first of all, the most important thing is when this vision happened. Verse one says in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, who remembers who Belshazzar was? 
if you if you've been listening or you've been reading through Daniel, you'll remember that Belshazzar in Daniel chapter five was the king that followed King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the king. Remember, there's a king that threw a party and he was very childish. He wanted to show off for his friends. And so he he commanded the slaves to go and bring the uh, dishes that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that they can drink their their alcohol out of them during his party. And then as they're doing so, the writing started appearing on the wall. God's hand showed up and and wrote many, many tekel, a parson, which means I believe um, uh, you've been found. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting your kingdom shall be given over to the to the uh, Persians. That's who Belshazzar was. And if you remember from that chapter, Belshazzar, he, he wasn't like King Nebuchadnezzar was at the end. He wasn't the Nebuchadnezzar who humbled himself, but he was a very wicked king, a kind of lascivious king uh, that had a high disregard for um, for uh, for the Israelites. And we know that because when when the queen mother told him about Daniel, we saw the con- the contempt with which he regarded Daniel. You're just one of the exiles, he said of Daniel. And so remember how apocalyptic literature functions. It helps you see things as they really are, right? It helps you see things from the standpoint of heaven. And so if we're if we're considering this and then Daniel has this vision um, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon's reign, there's something of a connection here. There's something of a connection that should lead us to begin thinking, why did it open up saying in the first year of Belshazzar's reign and then jump right in to begin talking about these visions that he had in, in the night, four great beasts coming up. The connection that we should make is that this vision is about the kingdoms of the earth. You know, this this vision is about the kingdoms of the earth from the vantage point of heaven. And just, I guess, in a, because I don't want to belabor the point, but in a summary, what it's saying is the kingdoms of the earth are beastly, right? They're all beastly. None of them are good. They're all wicked. They all emerge from wickedness. They all devour. They all destroy, right? And actually, if you, if you pay attention, and this is something that I just learned from, um, a man named N.T. Wright, he pointed this out in one of his uh, podcasts, Daniel chapter six and Daniel chapter seven are very similar. Remember what happened in Daniel chapter six? We have rulers who are corrupt. They're jealous. And so they take Daniel, who was righteous, and cast him into uh, the lion's den. Right. Then in Daniel chapter seven, You have kingdoms of the earth who are wicked and they're wreaking havoc on the earth and trying to do uh, wicked things to righteous people. So he called Daniel chapter six, like the children's version of Daniel chapter seven. But the message is the same. Those rulers, those kingdoms in in authority, um, they're wicked people. And how do we know that they're wicked? Well, we know they're wicked because of the the imagery that's that's used to depict them. Let me find. Um, let's see. There's a place in here ah, in, in verse three. Listen to where it says that the four beasts emerged from. 
verse three. And the four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, from for many people, that may just be a throwaway verse. Oh, they, they came out of the sea. Okay, well, that's cool. But for the ancient Israelite, they would have seen that. And that one word, sea, that would have said something to them. Because the sea or, or water or oceans um, in Israel and Israelite uh, literature, that conveyed chaos, that conveyed wickedness. So you remember in Genesis chapter one, um, in the beginning was uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says, and the spirit was hovering above the water, the chaotic waters, the formless earth. The spirit was just kind of hovering over it. And then what did he do? He spoke and he spoke form into it. He began speaking creation into the very thing that was chaotic and formless. And then as the story continues, Israel's story, that is, you'll see that when they were rescued from uh, Egypt, what did they have to travel through? They had to travel through the Red Sea. Once again, the sea is an obstacle that's standing in the way of them. And even when and over and over again, this is the case in, in Israelite uh, literature and theology. When Jesus comes, why did the gospel writers make a point of telling us stories of stuff that Jesus did while on the boat? Remember, he's in a boat. He's fast asleep. The disciples say, Lord, don't you care that we perish? And then Jesus wakes up. And what does he do? Peace be still. He stills the sea. On another instance, he walks on the stormy sea. And then if you look in the book of Revelation at the very end, it says one one verse that a lot of people just take it as a throwaway. But it says there was no more sea. So the sea for ancient Israelites is a very wicked thing. And so when it says in verse three that four beasts came up out of the sea different from one another, we get a sense that these beasts are wicked. These beasts are absolutely uh, wicked beasts that are wreaking havoc upon the earth, right? Now, they're, they're wreaking havoc upon the earth, but remember the whole tenor of the book of Daniel. This is a book in which the Israelites have been taken prisoner. They are, they're exiled in a foreign land, but God is still in control. God was in control when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, were taken as slaves and then uh, enrolled in King Nebuchadnezzar's university. God was in control when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in the fiery furnace and God showed up. God was in control uh, when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and he shut the mouths of the lions. Well, in this vision, God is still in control because even though all of those beasts are very powerful, you'll still see that someone is as, um, limiting the amount of chaos that they could wreak. For example, what does it say of the the um, the first beast, the lion that had eagle's wings? It says, I looked as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man who plucks the wings off of, off of a lion. You know, um, so suppose you're at the zoo and, <laughs> and it's your first day and they say, hey, you're a part of the lion exhibit. We got a strange one today, one that came with wings. So here, just here's some scissors. Go take the wings off so people don't think anything strange of it. You know what I mean? But in this thing, it's there's a lion with wings. The wings are plucked off. Who plucks it off? And then the bear, uh, the bear is told. Let's see. 
in verse 5, the bear is told, arise, devour much flesh. Who's commanding the bear? So despite the, the utter craziness of these, of these descriptions, the word is still God is in control. So from a, a disciple's perspective, what are we supposed to do with these illustrations and these images of the beasts? Well, if I'm Daniel and I'm understanding that these beasts represent um, human governments, human uh, uh, control, kingdoms, powers, stuff like that, I don't put my trust in them. I see them from a heavenly perspective as beasts, so I don't put my trust in them. I serve God and I approach them with wisdom, but I do not trust in them. Now, that's a word for us today, especially us here in the West. This is an election year. In fact, I think the last time I preached from Daniel, it was another presidential election year. But that being the case, man, you got so many Christians who are aligning themselves. In fact, the, the American church, you can split it right down political lines. It's very embarrassing. It's very shameful, whereby Christians in many of these churches you can just look at the church and say, that's full of Republicans. That one over there, that's full of Democrats. Our loyalty is not primarily uh, to God, but our loyalty is primarily to these systems, these political systems. Daniel would say, you're being loyal to a beast. You're being loyal to a ravenous beast. Look at them from a heavenly perspective. And I know we in America, we like to, you know, we like to tout our freedom and we do experience the level of freedom that many other countries and nations don't enjoy. Nevertheless, our government in America emerges from the sea. It emerges from the sea. It doesn't descend from the righteousness of God, but it emerges from the sea. Even if it has done some good things, it still emerges from the sea. And so this apocalyptic literature tells us don't be loyal to them. Be careful. Don't be loyal to them. Be careful and use wisdom when when dealing with them. Right. Because they are out for disaster and destruction. And if you're loyal to them, they will wreak havoc upon your life and you will be destroyed with everybody else that's loyal to them. Well, then who should we be loyal to? That's where the vision shifts from verse nine until verse 14. The vision shifts from these beasts to the throne room of God, where one who's described as the ancient of days taking his seat. And then listen to the language. I'll read some of the language again uh, for us. His clothing is white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. Now, it says it's like pure wool. This Daniels, he's he's kind of at the uh, the the limits of his language to describe what he's seen. His hair was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. Uh, the, the throne was fiery flames. So he's like he sees something that's amazing. He doesn't have the language to describe it. And so he's doing the best he can. That's what's happening here. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And that a thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Right. And then to skip to um, 
verse 13, and behold, um, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, listen, in the previous vision, dominion was uh, given to was uh, held by the beasts that were destroying the earth. But here, when this son of man comes and stands before the ancient of days, dominion was given to him glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. You're starting to get the picture here. The governments of the earth are beastly. Don't be loyal to them. But there's one who stands before the ancient of days. Be loyal to him. His kingdom will never come to an end. That's what, at least in Daniel chapter seven, and go ahead when you have time, read verses 15 through 28. You'll see that it's telling the same story of all these beasts that represent different eras of kingdoms and leadership and, and, um, and governments, wicked, 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 the Romans, wicked, the Germans, wicked, the Americans, wicked. Uh, Alexander the Great, wicked, Nebuchadnezzar, wicked, all bent after evil and destruction, all wicked. So this is saying, but there's one, there's a son of man that stands before the ancient of days and the ancient of days is pleased to give all authority to him. Now, if you have a very, um, a very biblical air and you have that, that scriptural echo taking place, when it says in verse um, verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I hope that that reminds you of something that happens at the end of Matthew, because at the end of Matthew, listen to what Jesus says. In verse 19, and Jesus came and said to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that amazing? I don't know. To me, it's it's so clear. Power and authority has been given to the son of man in Daniel's vision at the end of Matthew before Jesus ascends. He's saying, I have been given all power and authority. So Jesus, this is another instance in where Jesus is, is claiming his messianic rule. And then he is enlisting his disciples, including you and me of going into the earth and rescuing people from the dominions of darkness that are still held by the grips of these beasts that are, yes, under God's control, but nevertheless, they're still wreaking havoc. Why? Because God wants to involve humans in the process of bringing his redemption to all the earth. To me, that's, I don't know, this is really cool. It's the best story ever. It's the best movie ever. And so how do we engage in God's process of redemption? Number one, we're not loyal to human authority. We're loyal to God. And as those who are loyal to God and belong to God, we go into the world and convince people through not only our teaching, but through our living for the most part. 
And I say for the most part, because nowadays Christians say a whole lot, but their lives don't match up. Um, So through our teaching and our living word and precept and action, we teach people that the one who appears before the ancient of days, the son of man, Jesus Christ is the one that's in charge in charge. So serve him, serve him. Okay, man, I hope that was as good. (laughs) That's weird to say. I was going to say, I hope that was as that was as good for you as it was for me. Uh, (laughs) Anyways, so that's Daniel chapter seven. Um, Finish the chapter, read the rest, read the interpretation. And then when when we come back next time, we're going to be in Daniel chapter eight, which continues um, with uh, another apocalypse. Um, This time is going to be of a ram and a goat. Well, actually, you know what? Let me think for a second. Yeah, we'll do Daniel chapter eight. At some point, we have to press pause and talk about angels and watchers and messengers and the role they play, Uh, because we're going to get to a part in this chapter um, where where Daniel will encounter angels. And so I think it's important to, to press pause and just deal with that for a second. So, um, yeah. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this lesson. Thank you for your people. God, I pray that this was helpful to your people. And if there's any part of it that was unclear or, or untrue, then let your Holy Spirit, whom you've given to us as a teacher, bring truth and clarity to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, if thank you, first of all, if you made it here, you're amazing. You made it to the end. You are amazing, man. I don't care what anybody says about you. You are amazing in my book. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you found it helpful and there's someone that you think it might um, be helpful to, please send it to them uh, and you'll make my day. All right. Love you guys. I'll talk to you next time. Peace.